The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online. Plus, we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week, rather than our usual one, because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined today by James Ganangasorium, who is Chief Research Officer at Focal Data, among other things. And we're going to be talking about the state of the polls. Now, James, I wanted to get you in because I think usually people underestimate Donald Trump's appeal. There is perhaps a slight danger that in 2024, with the polls looking the way they are, Trump now easily the bookmaker's favourite to be president, that we are overestimating his appeal and perhaps underestimating Joe Biden. Um, you wrote a piece for Unheard that suggested we might be doing that. Can you tell me what you think? Thanks, Freddie, and a pleasure to, to be on here today. Great to have you. So I'll start at very high level. I think talking around the, the kind of political community, whether that's here or the US, I would say operatives are probably 95% sure that Donald Trump will win. And basically at Focal Data, what we did is just to take a look at six swing states and just to test that hypothesis, because the level of confidence that Trump's going to be elect, uh, kind of elected is very, very high. And our conclusion is that actually, yes, he is more likely to win the presidency than uh, President Joe Biden. But we think it's only around 65% probable, which I think would make Joe Biden as likely to win the presidency as Donald Trump was in 2016, yeah. on, a, on a probabilistic basis. And... You know, there's a couple of simple reasons for that, and there's a couple of more complicated reasons to do with how polls are conducted. So I guess at the very kind of macro high-level view, there are four key reasons why Trump is slightly less likely to be elected, or it's not a slam-dunk case. The first is his, his actual lead across the swing states. So if you just take a step back at the Electoral College map, it's, it's very small. And it's small, by that I mean it's only around four to five states. That's very different to the last election where we had anything north of around 12 states. You know, we had swing state polling being conducted in Texas, in Florida. People were still looking at states like Ohio and Iowa that had previously fallen, that have now fallen out of what we would call the kind of swing state column. Mm. And, you know, what we've seen is some states now that were swing state reliably go Republican. And the, the same is also true on the Democrat side. Like, you know, when we grew up, Colorado, Virginia were yeah. kind of really key swing states that have determined election, very unlikely to be the case going forward. So we're really talking about four or five states. We're talking about Pennsylvania, we're talking about Michigan, we're talking about Wisconsin, Arizona, and, and Nevada. Mm. Um, and actually, when you look at those states, we did also poll Georgia, but that's slightly different in terms of the dynamics there. The Trump lead that we saw was actually quite small. Very yeah. small, uh, small to the extent that it is the kind of thing that could be wiped away by, I guess, our second point, which is that incumbent presidents put on votes during elections, right? Mm. That's that's a pretty consistent rule, except for, I would have to say, Donald Trump <laughs> in uh, in the last cycle. So 
if you if you take a look at incumbent presidents since Reagan, so eighty four, on average, incumbent presidents put on one point seven five percent between the January, uh, which is when we conducted the polling, of an election, and then the subsequent actual election in November. Mm. But it actually, if you take out George H W Bush, because of course he had the extraordinary nineteen ninety two election, where Ross Perot, the billionaire populist candidate, sounds familiar, mm. uh, took nineteen percent of the vote. The incumbent president then, George H.W. Bush, did very badly and actually lost nine points. So if you take him out of that average mm. of 1.75, on average, incumbent presidents put on 3.75% of votes during an election year. Right. You know, if Joe Biden was just a regular incumbent president, that 3.75 would be enough to push him over the line across almost all of the swing states that we measured, except for Georgia where yeah. it looks like you know it's it's a kind of bit of a foregone conclusion there so that's the second uh, kind of really high level reason yeah there's that's a big if though there isn't it if I joe mean, biden was that, a regular that's the thing yeah because actually you know can you really take an average of uh that is it's six data points right and mm. well well six aggregated data points over monthly polling the reality is it's more like a scenario um because the, the biggest incumbent increases were for the great communicators of, mm. of that of that century, you know, Reagan and Clinton, who put on north of 6%. And actually, the more, uh, if we're thinking about scenarios, the more probable one is someone like George W. Bush, who in 04, put on around two points. Right. And if he did put on two points, then we have potentially a bit of a chaos scenario, because that might be just enough, it might not just be enough. But in a very constrained battleground states, in that kind of scenario, you've then got the kind of congressional districts at large becoming important. So there are two, there's one in Nebraska and there's one in Maine. Mm. It's, it, it could be that close. Now, this is all kind of fundamentals analysis that is done very separate to the question of President Biden and, you know, how he is doing and mm. his age and his performance and all the questions around that. And it's just saying, how is he doing in the swing states and what happens generally with incumbent presidents? And I guess the other, uh, the other two, just before we kind of deep dive on them, would be... It's a bit of a meta one, which is that you mentioned right at the top of the program that that pollsters, but also politicos, have traditionally under underplayed how strong Donald Trump's hand is with the electorate. And there's a couple of really good reasons for that. In the 2016 cycle, the national polls were correct, but the state polls were wrong. And the state polls were wrong in so much as they didn't properly quota for, so they didn't interview enough respondents who were typically white and particularly didn't have a college education and so that was a big problem with underlying samples and that's why you had quite a correlated error it's why you had ohio it's why you had pennsylvania it's why you had iowa it's why you had michigan you know he only just uh, the democrats only just won minnesota but the same problem existed there as well and mm. um, that was ostensibly solved for for the 2020 cycle but then you had another set of polling errors that reappeared again in almost the same states Yes. Um, having already adjusted for education levels. And what happened there is I think the original diagnosis in 2016 wasn't entirely correct. It wasn't the whole story. Yes, pollsters weren't interviewing people who didn't have a college education enough or rural voters or white voters in particular. But the, the thing that was really important wasn't the actual demographics. It was their behavior and their psychology, which is those types of voters in general tend to be lower trust. Mm. So... They tend to be less trusting of institutions, less trusting of the media, less trusting to an extent of each other. Mm. We know this because there's a great um, census-like survey that's conducted in America called the ANES, which is the American National Election Survey, which is 
you know, we're getting a bit nerdy here. It's a problem, kind of a probabilistic survey yes. where samples are drawn from the country throughout the year. So we, so it's very, it's done in a really gold standard way. It's not like an 800 likely voter poll that's turned around in two days. It's almost like a census. Yes. And the key thing about that survey is it asks about trust levels. And one of the things, if you look at that data source, is it shows that a lot of the polling samples in 2020 were not talking to low trust voters enough and actually they are very disproportionately for trump and they're not necessarily by the way just kind of white working class voters they're spread across the map mm. and yeah so that i mean that's critical it's interesting you mentioned that because of course you mentioned low trust in government in journalism and so on in yeah. media and so on and of course another low trust factor here is low trust in elections themselves and you see that reflected not just across Trump voters, but across Democrats as well and independents. I wonder, particularly with Trump and this sort of line that the election will be rigged. I mean, Trump sort of talks about it as though we're going to have to vote, we're going to have to win by a massive margin to overwhelm the rigging and the stealing that will take place. Is there evidence as to whether that puts people off bothering to vote? Does that make people more low propensity? Because the curious thing I think about 2020 was even though a lot of Trump voters thought it was rigged, they still turned out and voted. I'm not sure that people take Trump at face value. I'm not sure he's a face value politician. So when he says one thing, very often he's trying to get a reaction or an effect. Yeah. And the effect there is clearly to drive up turnout, right? Yeah. And to draw people to the polls. And obviously, you know, the evidence is very clear the election wasn't rigged. And I guess for him, it's a double-edged sword with that. Because actually, if you look at the polls... If anything, they suggest a narrow Republican victory. Yeah. So, at the next election, uh, in terms of the presidency. Yeah. So it's a pretty it's a pretty dangerous argument to, to to make. But I think that when he's saying that, I don't think he actually believes. Yeah. That story. I think it's a turnout tool that he's using. But the point you make about trust is really important. It isn't just a wholly Republican thing, although that it's caused a kind of Republican error. We also saw a lot of minority voters who are younger. Mm. being uh, much lower on levels of social trust. And the key thing, I think, from a polling perspective is once you adjust your state polls or your national polls for correct levels of social trust by demographic, you don't get these kind of errors that appear. And I think all of this is a, is, is a quite a, a, a long preface to the point I would make about this cycle, which is this is the first time I can envisage there being a Democrat polling error in favor of the democrats so the first time in three cycles mm. where the polling samples look like they might have some underlying information that tells us that the democrats might be being underplayed and there's a couple of good uh, reasons for that the first is and they're both they're all kind of correlated or they co-vary together so the first is vaccination levels mm. so vaccination levels are very predictive of of two things in in in, in the u.s kind of political ecosystem the first is cha change in how you vote. So people who did not want to be vaccinated or people who were very keen to be vaccinated and have their full dose are at the sharpest edges of voter changes in, in, in the US. So uh, many of the seats or counties or people that swapped votes in the 2020 election for the most vaccinated areas, those went to Biden. And for the least vaccinated, those went to Trump. And we know this because we have official statistics from the CDC, mm. which break down by age and also all the way down to county level. Now, what I think surprised us at Focal Data, actually, was my prior going into this exercise was that we would not be picking up on enough unvaccinated respondents, mm. you know, because they're low, lower trust and they don't want... 
you know, they're, they're just the types of people not to take polls. I think what was really interesting with this finding, six swing states, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada, we actually had too many unvaccinated people in our rural polling samples. And that was particularly acute for people below 40. So, um, Freddie, you would have seen, there's been a lot of conversation about younger voters flipping to Trump, right? It's one of the yeah. it's one of the big themes that's that's happened. Younger voters, but also Hispanic voters, and also in particular, young black men. Young black men, Flipping yeah. to Trump. Now, I think two of those stories are partially true, Hispanics and young black men. But I think the degree to which US national polls are indicating a flip uh, amongst younger people to the Republicans is being overstated by the fact that the number of people that pollsters are interviewing who are below 40, who are either unvaccinated or have an incomplete dose, so they've had one dose, mm. is being overrepresented. And we know this because we've looked at it and done a big study, big study and done a lot of field work. And roughly there was, you know, almost 50% too many yes. people. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these polls suggesting that younger people are very authoritarian or anti-democratic. Yeah. Now the corollary to that though, it's not just a pure, that's a Democrat polling bias. It does look that the opposite is true of older voters as well. So the other flip side to this story of younger people flipping Republican and older people flipping Democrat, which I think is a great story when you think about it, because it's an inversion of the natural age curve of left, right. Yes. Does look like some of the polling samples don't have enough unvaccinated people at the older end of, end of the spectrum. Yeah. So some of these gains that President Biden has been making amongst older voters may be slightly phantom or less you know, less kind of material than yes. I think the polls say. But but all in all, it does look like a, a, a an issue in terms of under, underlying polling samples. The other the other variable that you would look at that's a proxy also for vaccination is attitudes to affirmative action and right. attitudes towards employment. And one of the things that we looked at is the question again from the survey ANES, which is this kind of quasi census. And it has an amazing question. It's quite controversial. I can't imagine the UK census ever <laughs> using a question like this, but it's um, how likely is it that many whites are unable to find a job because employers are hiring minorities instead? Mm. So that's obviously quite, that's quite a punchy, loaded question. Yes. But it's interesting. You know, we're less interested in, is it a fair question? Do people know what it means? We are really interested in the fact that we have a quasi-census statistic for yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. And... What's really interesting is that online surveys have too many people in general that are likely to believe that statement yes. on a very likely basis. Yes. In other words, people who are really, really pessimistic about job opportunities for white voters. Yes. There are too many of them in polling samples. And and this suggests that the sort of the revolt against the diversity, equity and uh, inclusion agenda is real and that a lot of people think the Biden administration in particular has been pushing far too hard it's definitely real that, but it's cl it's clearly being overplayed from, yeah. from a right-wing perspective in right. the states because yeah. there are too many people who is who are skeptical and i think that's interesting because all the you know when you think about an election and you're like is there a polling error most pollsters will in their own heads operate like a flag system right which is there are five or six things that are completely different ways of looking at the polls do the flags all point the same way yeah and in 2016 there was already a lot of conversation about white working class voters mm. in 2020 there was already a lot of conversations about low trust voters it's just quite interesting if you look at all the flags this time mm. they're kind of slightly pointing in the democrat direction and that has been validated by 
recent election results, right? So yeah. you would have seen that George Santos, the uh, Republican congressman that was expelled, and they, they re-ran the election in his seat. Again, yeah. Democrats overperformed. Democrats have been overperforming in actual elections in the recent cycles. Again, that's new. Yeah. And, and I think it's because there's a potential kind of polling error in favor of the Democrats. Again, I would say it's still probably not enough. Yes. Uh, given where the polling averages are. But that, that would be the third major factor, why things are less that's, slam dunk for Trump. That's very interesting, if, if, if that's true in, on, on diversity and equity and, and so on. But the more obvious factor for why Democrats have been overperforming is abortion and how that has flipped as an issue. Uh, since the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, which has made abortion an issue that drives out Democratic support in the way that it used to drive out Republican support. Yeah, so it's in a the huge turn, and it has. And we've we've analysed that, and we we went through the map and looked at, and we asked about, you know, is this going to be a major factor behind you turning out? And abortion is a very salient issue mm. uh, for more moderate Dems as well. That's the, that's the key thing here. Yeah, that that Supreme Court decision is not turning out the people who are always going to turn out for the Democrats. It's yeah. turning out people who are middle-aged, who might be suburban, who might have been very mixed in terms of their voting history. And yes, it, it clearly does change the nature of the electorate. And again, this would lead me to the kind of the fourth major thing that's less to do with DE&I issues and polling error and, mm. and something quite simple, which is that every election, if you look at the battleground states and then you look at the battleground issues, and you ask who owns each issue, you get an amazing map, which is basically, I'll try and describe it for your listeners. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a two by two, where basically your vertical axis is how important is that issue, and your mm. horizontal axis is who owns that issue. So is it the Republicans or is it the Democrats? And elections that are a foregone conclusion, the stuff that's most relevant tends to be being comprehensively won by one side. Mm. For contested elections, the most salient issues typically sit right in the middle, and no one owns them. And I think for, for across all six swing states, we noticed that the main issue that's driving voting intention today is, is inflation and the cost of food and energy. The, the cost of living crisis is what we call it in the UK. That's not the form of words they'd use in the States. Mm. But fundamentally, that trumps every other... If I can... Yeah, you know, always dangerous using that word. Yep. Uh, trumps any other issue. And what's really interesting is Republicans only own that by very low single digits two or three percent and generally when you have a contested issue ownership kind of graph or matrix mm. that suggests a very very close election and then you've got clear leads for the republicans on crime which is very interesting that's clearly been a massive flaw in the democrat strategy and immigration so we've got cost of living is the most important issue the cost of food and energy is above 40 percent okay. in almost every swing state and immigration though is second or third both yeah. across all of the states so it's very important the democrats really only lead on healthcare and gun violence and again those are much less salient issues they're either equal to immigration or slightly less yes so this election really it's funny to think about it you know because a lot of u.s politics has been fought on a social axis right the main protagonists in the u.s election play if you want to call it that are people who are at the sharpest edges of the culture wars yeah but really this this election is about the cost of living and it's about the economy uh, which is a bit of a a bit of a return i guess to how politics may have operated before yes and interesting that healthcare is dropping down in terms of voters concerns because i suppose what that says is since obamacare trump doesn't strike voters as somebody who's going to 
kind of take away their health care in a way another Republican might, in a way, say, Nikki Haley or someone might. One of the strengths of, of Trump as a candidate, which doesn't really get enough comment, is his economic positioning, mm. which is much more nationalist and much more pragmatic mm. than people potentially give him credit for. You know, so this is not an extreme economic agenda. His lead on the cost of living and on the economy in general is probably a legacy of a fairly America's fairly strong economic performance from yes. 2016 to 2020. Yes. So I think there's a there's a huge amount to unravel. I mean, the key thing that's gone wrong here, I think, from the Democrat perspective, right? You've had the terribly named IRA, mm. um, the Inflation Reduction Act, and then the Chips Act. So you've had some of the biggest infusions of money into the system. But one of the key things that happened with those pieces of legislation, some of them were so large that they used AI to analyze them, right? <laughs> and they weren't clearly positioned in a retail way, right? Mm. To help everyday people drive down their everyday costs. They're quite technical, large-scale pieces of legislation that are focused on massive pieces of infrastructure, mm. uh, many of which, uh, in terms of return and benefits, sit many, many decades away. Mm. And really the thing that, that matters for this election is dollars in the wallet. Do I feel better off? I exactly. And, you know, some of the economic news that's coming out is better. But again, the interesting thing that came out from our swing state polling was the thing that's really important isn't the real economy, it's the felt economy. Mm. And, you know, it's not one of those elections where you can just look at the inflation numbers and look at the kind of farm roll pay or whatever it is that the economists look at. That's not going to lead necessarily to a exact change in voting intention. It's like yeah. how people feel. Yes. And there's a clear, there's clear evidence that there's, the two are actually quite dislocated. Yes. But I guess my, yeah, the wider point is this doesn't feel like an election where it's a 95% probable Donald Trump win. A, because we're talking about really only four swing states. Because mm. I've mentioned six, right? But Georgia, the polling shows that, that, that Biden is, is, is almost double digits behind in yeah. Georgia. Or, you know, it's very, very hard to kind of overcome that in, 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 in this cycle. And also Nevada is interesting and is very swingy, but I mm. think it's only six electoral college votes. So Nevada is interesting. It's either an unnecessary vote, it's either you're already over the line yeah. or it's not enough. Right. So really when you take when you look at the swing states, it's four states and also they're in an order as well. So yeah. Pennsylvania was nineteen electoral college votes. That's the key. If you don't win Pennsylvania, you basically need to win every other single swing state. So a very, very narrow path. Yes. So but if you win Pennsylvania and then Michigan, and I'll have to check my numbers here, I think Michigan is sixteen yeah. electoral college votes. If you win those two, again, more in the kind of Midwest. The Democrats would only need to win of one of Wisconsin and Arizona. Yes. So it's, it's been a long time since you've been able to describe a US presidential election in a sentence. Yeah. In terms of the mechanics. Well, one thing we haven't talked about, which is a very significant factor, is mail-in voting. Because 2020, let's not get into Trumpy talk about stolen elections and so on. But the truth is... You had a huge, particularly in states like Pennsylvania, you had a huge and very significant uh, expansion of mail-in voting that mm -hmm. vastly favoured the Democrats. That's unlikely to happen again, which again points towards a Trump victory. So I think some of that's COVID-led behaviour, yeah. like people literally just not wanting to cast their ballot and having millions of people sign on. But I do think it has permanently changed voter behaviour. Yeah. You know, there's so many things post-COVID that just haven't gone back to where they were, whether yeah. that's in-person events, meetings, offices, churches that are 10% less full than they were or 20% less full. Mm. This feels like one of those issues where, yes, there's going to be a reversion, but it's not going to go back to where it was. And you know, there was strong evidence if you looked at the 
the breakdowns of how people voted. Yes, people who were mailing in were disproportionately Democrat versus on the day voters. But the reality is those people will, if you know, if they had intended to vote by mail-in and they're not going to, they're probably still going to turn out on the yeah. day. So what you're likely to see is a less strong partisan skew yeah. by how people are voting uh, right. in terms of voting type. So I don't think it's going to uh, necessarily favour Trump. I mean, the thing that's really favouring Trump, I think, is I guess the, the elephant in the room here is, is, is uh, President Biden's age yes. and his performance and whether he'll actually still be the nominee. That's key. You know, we asked in our in our poll how concerned are you about President Joe Biden's age? 49% of people said very concerned. Yeah. 17% said moderately concerned. But here's the thing. We also asked that about Donald Trump. And only 26% of people said they were very concerned. And only 14% of people said moderately concerned. And basically, you know, the issue that faces the Democrats is that the, the coalition of people who are very concerned about the president's age is like a supercharged Republican vote. It's basically the Republican vote plus another top slice mm. of the weakest Democrats. Right. And that, you know, that really, really matters. And there's clearly an asymmetry there. Yes. And, and I guess the other, the other thing to note, though, the corollary to that is we, um, you know, one of our analysts very diligently went about and built a voter model, which is trying to estimate why people are defecting from the Democrat Party to other. So, you know, we've mentioned Trump, but actually the other minor party candidates, mm. um, Stein or whether that's RFK. Mm. So, because at the minute we have a, a fairly extraordinary election where I think 89% of Trump voters from 2020 are still intending to vote Trump, which is really high, just so people understand that's, you know, that's higher than the number of people in some UK polls for the Labour, for Labour's voter retention rate is really high yeah but the democrat voter retention rate is lower but it's also still really high it's 81 percent, right and that's basically driving the kind of voting intention numbers at the minute there's very few people who've actually swapped we we think it's somewhere only about two percent of people who swap their vote so you know just to give a bit of context in the uk you know 15 percent of 2019 conservatives have swapped to labor Yes. Right. Yeah. So this is almost seven times the number. So really, the U U.S. politics is far more ossified. There are yeah. trenches. Cross voting is much more rare. The seam of people that you're, you're looking at, swing voters, are a much smaller seam, and therefore it becomes much more about turnout, because effectively your persuadable universe is much smaller. And here's the thing: when we looked into, we asked people why you know you've defected from the Democrats, you're not intending to vote for them, and then you build a model to kind of estimate why. And the, the key reason that came out was, which is slightly tautological, was disapproval of Joe Biden as president. But the really interesting that came out was um, Republicans being rated as better to handle the cost of living. Yes. And the second issue was uh, low institutional trust. And that was, though, in line with concerns about Biden's age. So I think the age question is obviously very important. It's also very visible, which has led to a lot of news coverage. But actually, when you peel, peel under the numbers, mm. the thing that's really driving the current voting intention numbers in the six swing states is job approval and job approval is linked to cost of living and who is better on that and it's really simple it makes for less good copy but well no that's that's <laughs> we need we're after the truth good copy uh, on the podcast anyway i just want to ask you lastly james you you, you mentioned biden there and, his, and the worry about his age and so on and being mm. a weak candidate have you done any polling on how other Democratic candidates would fare? And is it as good as, you know, the other Democrats who are putting their hat in the ring suggest it is? 
Yeah, great question. Yeah, we did. Back in January, there were there were murmurs of, of, of things potentially not going to plan. So we actually polled Gretchen Whitmer, who I think mm-hmm. is the governor of, of Michigan, Gavin Newsom, the kind of Californian Republican, and also the vice president, Kamala Harris. And, and, and here's the thing, you know, none of their numbers were particularly compelling. Mm. Some of that is down to very low awareness levels, though. So broadly, Whitmer and Newsom basically shadowed President Biden's ratings. They were right. basically the same, except slightly less. But here's the extraordinary thing. When you measure a candidate that's not really known against Donald Trump, you only use the numbers of people in a poll that are actually aware of the Democrat candidate. Yeah. So you basically have to junk about half your respondents yeah. um, because they don't know who it is. So therefore, you can't. it's not a fair matchup. So it's pretty extraordinary that even though we had a poll with a, a poll and a sub bit of the poll that had half the number of people, mm. the voting intention numbers were still basically the same, right. which suggests very low awareness. It also suggests that things could change uh, a lot if the Democrats did shuffle uh, their cards yeah. and change the deck. Uh, there was nothing of interesting to note other than I think Gavin Newsom was 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 better known and his performance was quite disappointing yes. uh, if you're a Democrat. And the second thing is Whitmer's performance in Michigan had a very, very clear lead over Trump. And here's the thing, Jim, she's an interesting candidate because, of course, she obviously locks locks up her own state. And we've talked about that being the second most important state. Yeah, That would, in all likelihood, have a bleed-over effect into Wisconsin. Yeah. Quite similar demographics. But more importantly, Wisconsin and Michigan tend to co-vary. In other words, they tend to move in the same direction, Yes, uh, depending on the electoral cycle. And I that- can, Yeah, I can see that being very significant in Michigan. I mean, I suppose against that, you'd say that, you know, look at Trump against other governors, DeSantis, Nikki Haley. They talk about their record as governor. He talks about the record, his record as president. It tends to win being, having been a president over having been a governor. Well, incumbency is powerful, I guess, to yeah. return to our initial conversation, right? On average, the president's put on 1.75%. And, on, and if you're not, if you exclude H.W. Bush, that's 3.75. So, but again, Trump actually lost a point between 2016 and 2020. So in yes. January 2020, his poll ratings nationally were actually one point higher yeah. than they were by the election. So he was the first president for a very long time since Bush the first to actually lose votes. But he uh, increased in election it, year. He increased his number. He increased the number, but, yeah. vote, but vote shares, vote, vote shares share. king. Yeah. yeah, And one of the first. James, absolutely fascinating to have you in. Please do come in again uh, because um, your insights are extremely interesting thanks a lot freddie pleasure to be here that's all for this episode of the americano podcast i'd like to thank my brilliant producer natasha Ferrose, and urge you to leave a generous kind and warm-hearted review of this podcast uh, on whichever platform you listen to it <laughs>